Welcome to the Game and Gadget Podcast. from pixelrefresh.com and today I have with me the most guests we've had in one podcast bit of an experiment here we go first of all we have of course Tony Warriner one of the founders of Revolution Software and co-host to the Game and Gadget podcast thanks for joining me again Tony no problem also today I have Eugene Sandalenko who is from ScumVM and we'll get into more about ScumVM in a moment thank you Eugene for joining us Thank you. And we have Aaron Fothergill, who's got a rich development programming history as well, which we'll dig deep into in a moment. Thank you for joining us, Aaron. Hi. So, um, just to get us started, today it's quite an apt day to be recording this because it's been 20 years, ScumVM, since their very first commit of code has existed. 20 years of an open source project. Now, when I think to other open source projects, some can stand the test of time and others can disappear, end of life. Maybe someone will take it on. Maybe no one will. It was just stagnate. But ScumVM, certainly for 20 years, always seems like it's had this constant flow of development. Developers have sometimes come and gone, but the amount of work that goes into it continues with new titles supported all the time. Eugene. You must be very proud to say ScumVM's been around for 20 years. Absolutely. Uh, but I would like to share that it's not belonging to me. It's a whole team. And uh, it's really been growing. And the last year is tremendous, especially in the number of commits. I was looking at the statistics. And in the last year, we have 160, I think, four or something people contributing their patches which is amazing and uh, mm. yeah this is but this is definitely something to to speak about because uh, thanks to the project and effort of people who've uh, put in there a lot of games and old games like tony you may relate much more can be played together uh, today on the modern platforms on anything which has a screen as actually we have uh, even things working on that where on the fridges, even ScumVM. That's that's what I wanted to say. ScumVM on a fridge. Wow, that's special, isn't it? <laughs> so I wrote a, a bit of a post about ScumVM with it being the 20th anniversary. And I didn't remember looking at that. One of the earliest sort of code submissions was actually a Dreamcast port. And it just sort of triggered, even early on, people were thinking, what can we port this to? And ScumVM, for those who don't know, is uh, allows you the ability to play classic point-and-click adventure games. And there are certainly many out there. 
So Tony will uh, recognize a few of these titles, such as Broken Sword, Beneath a Steel Sky, just to name just a couple. And then from other developers and publishers, you've got things like Simon the Sorcerer, and you've got other LucasArts games like Day of the Tentacle, Full Throttle. And now you've also merged with Residual uh, VM, which is like some of the more 3D-based ones as well. So Grim Fandango. But to have... So you mentioned there, what's it, 164 people submitting code in just the last year alone. How on earth do you organize and structure that so the code is still of a, a good high quality with just so many people? That's a very good question. And I can tell you that um, it keeps amazing me because uh, the actual foundations of like I'm talking about the architecture was laid down 20 years ago and only few uh, major changes were since that and this is thanks to brilliance of the programmers, programmers uh, original uh, Ludwig Stigels Lude and yeah, uh, Vincent Ham Yazer uh, maybe you know that Lude since that created MuTorrent now he works at Spotify Vincent was involved uh, after ScumVM in uh, very big gaming projects like Heavy Rain Engine for PlayStation 3. And uh, this is what they did. And um, the cleanness of this, I can tell you that I work professionally as a developer and these times as a manager. But ScumVM code is so far the one of the cleanest codes which I was working in. When the professional industry, it's hack and shape, we uh, strive for quality and uh, we have several guidelines which we, uh, I would say, even patrol for. And as a result, we demand that new submissions, especially bigger ones like new engines, they always comply to these standards. And this makes the code base maintainable, which, by the way, now it's more than three and a half million lines of code. It's it's a big, big project. <laughs> yeah, like... that is a beast of a size. Um, for those who don't know, my background's actually as a, a project manager in e-commerce. So I look after as a project manager, Magento, Shopify, WooCommerce, and I work with developers and sort of stakeholders. And I'm sort of that guy in the middle helping clients get what they want from an e-commerce website. And then on the other hand, I'm sort of passing on that information to developers. So we create issues, for example, and we have a process called not scum, scrum. <laughs> we should probably call it scrum VM, but no one's going to uh, appreciate that maybe, but still, so I understand the sort of fundamentals of here's a backlog that gets moved on. It's processed. And then you go into like a code review. And then it's pushed forward to like a staging and a production area. How does that translate to something like Scum VM when you have so many people? What is like the process of I have an idea, I want to code something, and then it gets to that stable build of Scum VM? We have very steep entry threshold, I would say. So if a new developer would like to join the project and uh, get permission to direct commits to the code, they have to work first uh, through the pull request on GitHub. And we are looking like maybe 
dozen of people are looking into the code quality issues and the uh, developer has to fix it, learn it. Sometimes it's really painful for the uh, process for them. I remember I myself was doing reviews and was providing like 50 nodes, uh, which has to be sometimes uh, like re require lengthy work. But once we have a confidence in the quality of the um, submission, then we grant the access. But still after that, several uh, developers which have been with the project uh, hanging quite like over a decade, they uh, review practically every commit and provide feedback. And this, this is where we get an improvement. Sometimes, of course, things happen. Sometimes we break. And this is why uh, at this moment we have continuous integration. We have BuildBot, which builds for 20 different platforms automatically and this is where we also see especially uh, portability because cambium is all about portability but i must tell yeah it's not an easy it's not an easy task and when uh, we have risky changes then the code goes only via pull request and if you take a look at the project that this these days we have a steady flow of those with different from small features but risky to the bigger refactorings which uh, we review meticulously before uh, coming to this, uh, like before they land to the main code line. One thing which is, um, how to say, drawback of being an open source free project, we don't have quality assurance department. So we rely on the users providing feedback about the bugs. And sometimes, uh, like recently, we fixed bug, which was sitting there for 15 years, <laughs> just because nobody cared to to report. So uh, this is how. But uh, I can tell you that most of the things are coming because people here they are volunteers and they hand with the product out of passion and love for the for the games they work with. So they have self interest of making things proper and uh, thanks to the supportive community of developers which we have uh, i can tell you that several people me included uh, they have very positive influence on their uh, professional career thanks to the project because they learned things they were coached uh, they were mentored speaking of mentoring every year we have students uh, from google summer of code so freshers coming out of uh, outside and that by the way helped us a lot to improve our documentation so we can show people new people how to work with the code base the code base is big yeah but probably i'm talking too much <laughs> I, I i can you can imagine for 20 years of the projects i can talk so maybe next question that's absolutely or, fine we're really interested eugene and such a milestone 20 years and it, again it's great that we have both you, Eugene, and Tony in the same podcast because Revolution Software, so I remember, again, I've been going through sort of some of the history of ScumVM and like picking out some of the highlights throughout the years. LucasArts originally weren't that keen on the idea of ScumVM. Let's just put it that way. Revolution Software, however, said, here's the source code. <laughs> so, Tony, I mean, 
how much do you know about those sort of conversations and making that source code available to Scum VM? I mean, not every publisher and developer were as keen as Revolution. Well, uh, yeah, I remember it quite well because, um, I mean, I think the email came to me and I, the original one saying, how about it? Um, uh, and I then sort of, uh, took, took it up with Charles and Norin at, at um, and, and Dave Sykes at, at revolution at one of the, one of the founders meetings we would have had once a month. And I, I kind of thought that there was no chance, you know, I thought, I thought it would be, uh, it would be just just seen as a bit a bit risky or controversial i mean the the easy answer is no we you know we're not going to give our source code out and um, why you know why would we you know who are these people you know, this kind of thing that, that i i didn't i didn't know which way it was going to go uh, but in actual fact it was quite an easy um sell to the to the to the other guys who 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 didn't not all of them knew what the project was you know so you know it was it was a very brief conversation and we said Let, let's do it you know and um off off went the source code i mean i think it was yoast yoast peters who probably wrote to me first first of all um uh, i mean yoast of course work, works at revolution now and i worked with yoast there for for many years a decade or so at least so i mean that's how i met yoast from that from that initial email which i think would have been requesting either lure or or um probably steel sky source i think it was the steel sky source the first the first one we ever we ever supplied um and yeah i mean we we i mean we 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 didn't know that much about it and i i kind of thought well you know they'll they'll take a look at our look at our source code and say um uh, forget that you know it's going to be because <laughs> the, the other thing was beneath a steel sky was actually assembly code uh, and, and I'm not sure they were expecting that at all. So I mean, I I thought you know you know they're they're going to get this they're going to get this zip file and unzip it and go you know holy sh what's this this is this is uh, <laughs> this is eighty eighty six assembly you know we we weren't expecting this at all you know um, so so uh, and I was as surprised as anyone when they actually figured figured this stuff out uh, and 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 put it into proper c++ code you know it was it was amazing to see it so uh but it, i mean it's a, it's it, it it did exactly what we wanted to do which was it preserved our games and kept them playing you know kept them going so you know there would not be uh beyond the skill sky i don't think if we hadn't kept beneath the steel sky alive via scum vm so it was an, it was an extremely good decision on 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 our part i think what a lovely accolade that is Thanks for sharing that. So that's brilliant. And Aaron. So we're talking about sort of modern development and so many people involved. And I guess you would have come from that time where individual programmers were like all encompassing and all powerful and could actually get something from start to finish almost. Yeah. I mean, I've written, I, I actually stopped counting at around a hundred but I've written over a hundred games, but by what would now, thanks to mobile games can be counted as things a lot smaller than they used to be. So as soon as we started doing stuff for mobile, I realized a lot of the stuff I'd done back, I used to write 10 liner games, for instance, on the Amiga that were actually better than a lot of the stuff coming out on mobile originally. And um, it's like, okay, right. That's it. I've written a hundred games now because I've, I've done hundreds of those things, you know, <laughs> but, I've also ended up working, I ended up working um, through a couple of companies at Argonaut Games 
as well. So I ended up at the stage where it's like I've gone from being a uh, well, not solo developer, but usually me and my brother, uh, my brother Adam would be uh, doing my art and sound, for instance. And we, we both ended up at Argonaut um, and a couple of other smaller companies before that with work, having to work with other people. And, and it's the whole having to learn to play nice with others thing that is a very different scenario from when you come as a solo developer. And some of the platforms you've had experience of, um, so the, the CD32 always makes me smile. Yeah, that was so, fun. <laughs> so we had, obviously we had the Amiga, mm-hmm. and then they said, oh, okay, all these consoles are being released. And there was certainly around that time lots of consoles being released, like the Atari Jaguar, for example, and then the other mainstays. But then they didn't want to be left behind. They had to no. have the CD32. You remember a, a TV series called Scrap Heap Challenge, where uh, a bunch of each team had to go out onto a scrap heap, find whatever bits they could and make something like a racing car or, you know, a flying machine and stuff like that. And I always thought that that's how Commodore had had to work for the CD32, because they had the Amiga, which was successful to a point. But Commodore were very rapidly going down the drain by that point. They, for some reason, rather business wise, they were really doing quite badly and atari weren't doing stunningly well either at the time and um commodore had to have a console they they failed horribly with their first thing the cd tv um which is actually not far off being an amiga with a cd bolted on but unfortunately for the controllers they did them infrared and that was the killer on it it would actually have been fairly good if they'd done decent controllers but with infrared controllers, it was absolutely unplayable because of the delay. Um, so CD32, they basically took the, the gubbins of an, a, an A1200, I think it was. We had a decent amount of memory-ish, put a CD on it, somehow managed to wire them together without actually giving you audio control of the CD other than getting audio from, playing audio from it. So you could you could start and stop playing on the CD, but you couldn't control the volume. So so when we did Jet Strike, going between tracks, it, it was a hard cut. Going between tracks, you could just start another track with this like stop start, and that was it. So and we actually fade in, fade out. yeah we deliberately played a sound effect over the join, because that's the only way to cover the fact that you've got a whacking great join in your audio going on. Um, and then. There was, there was all sorts of fun things like you didn't actually have enough RAM for most games unless you killed their spinny logo thing because they had this wonderful 3D spinning Commodore logo that came up at the start for CD32 that ate up all your actual fast RAM. <laughs> so you had to kill that, otherwise you wouldn't be able to start. Um, it had 1K of, of non-volatile memory for everything on it. There was no can't, you know, no other save memory for anything other than the one K that was shared between all the games on it. So typically you'd play one game, have maximum of one K of save data for however many, for whatever you're doing with that game. And then the next game you put in, you have to wipe your save data and save that game instead. Wow. And I thought the Sega Saturn was mean on the whole save game front. Oh no, it was, that horrendous. was, that was, that was its worst bit. I do suspect as well. It was very much like the Jaguar where the, the, the non-volatile RAM was probably minimum maximum of a hundred thousand writes or something as well. 
So I suspect most CD32s wouldn't actually last that long if you were using them because you'd end up with your flash RAM basically burning out. Um, and then actually developing for it was hilarious. You had uh, a little box that plugged in on the back that let you connect floppy drives to it. Uh, so as a developer, you could then boot off a floppy drive for your, for your game, run that, and you could still access the CD, but until you've burnt your first CD, you don't have any data for your game, so you have to swap floppies in and out. So what you had to do was build the game, send a big box of floppy disks off to Commodore, unless you had a big studio and somehow had a CD32 disk burner, which none of us ever did. So you send this big box of disks off to Commodore. They send you back a gold disk that you can now use. So you now make a new boot disk with a new version, run that and access the data you've burned from the previous version off the CD, progress it, send them another box and so on. And then if you want to add music, we, we were one of the first, uh, I think we we're probably if not what the first, one of the first games to use full-blown studio-done music um, on, on the CD. And um, to do that, we not only had to send them a box of floppies, we had to send them a DAP tape that they then had to transcode down onto CD. <laughs> and then it should come back to us. And eventually, after many months of rinse repeat, you end up with the final gold disc, which our publisher sent the previous one off by mistake to be mastered. So the original version of Jet Strike for CD32, you can't get past level 100 of 150 because there's a fatal bug in it. Um, because our publisher sent the wrong version off to be oh, mastered. Um, and so there's a later version that, um, I've name, Grand Slam put a compilation together of, of Game of Gold ones. Uh, and put it on there, which actually did have the final version on. So that one's the one to get if you can get hold of it. But they are rarer than unicorn stuff, you know. <laughs> yeah, wow. we did a we did a broken a, a Steel Sky a CD32 version, um, mm. and I don't remember anything about it whatsoever. Doing it or or testing it or developing it, uh, I don't remember anything. But there was one recently popped up on uh, eBay because I have I have a bunch of searches, automated searches on eBay for all our stuff that that I because I'm obsessed with buying our old stuff up. Um, and there was a CD32 Steel Sky came up for sale, and it was like four hundred quid or something. Yeah, because it's so because it's so rare. And I was thinking, I really want this because not even I have one of these, and I've got everything. No. I've got like I, I've got I've got like Czechoslovakian lure of the temperatures and all sorts of stuff that, that like, no no one else even knows it exists. But I haven't got a CD32 Steel Sky, and I couldn't afford it. It was like it was like so expensive. It was just there's just no way I could like yeah. justify spending the I mean, money. The, the, that's that's the thing is that the especially the CD32 and the even more rare AGA special versions of, of our games go for more than we ever made off those games. Um, so, you know, <laughs> yeah, we had a slightly I mean, dodgy we publisher never, at the time. <laughs> we never, we never earned four hundred quid from the CD32 version. That's for certain. Yeah. Well, the thing is, we we, we should have earned a fair bit because Jet Strike actually got in the top five, I think, on the CD32, um, and was doing pretty well. But our publisher vanished. Basically, they, they declared themselves bankrupt before ever paying anyone any royalties. So sounds about like, right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so why the CD thirty two? What what drew you to that platform? Um, in our case, it was because we'd already been doing Amiga games. Um, we had games ready to, that would go on it fairly well, 
and the CD part, because Adam, Adam and I were both musicians at the time. Uh, Ad, Adam was becoming more serious about it. I was, I was sort of a serious home studio buff at the time, but I was starting to realise that what I wanted to do was focus on writing games, whereas Adam was starting to switch into more actually working with the studio. So um, it was like, well, yeah, we could do a decent game. We, could, we can expand the game to more of what it could be but also we can do a full-blown soundtrack to it. And that, that was something that would, it was a really relatively easy thing in theory to do for the CD32. And we were desperate. Basically our publisher wasn't really paying us anything um, and we needed something out there. And it was like a, you know, a bit of a Hail Mary as the Americans call it. You know, if CD32 had been popular, then we could have done pretty well. Sounds like the 90s. <laughs> Yeah, but it, that it, most most of it, most of the platform releases we did, I think, on stuff were all, um, you know, those sort of Hail Marys. It was like one just about survival to the next. I mean, at the time, see, I, I, we, we got into doing the Amiga purely because I was running the Stoss Club on the ST, um, which, uh, and then uh, Mandarin asked me to, to do the, the Amos Club as well. So, of course, I'm working with Amos. And most of the stuff I was doing was Amos and assembly language together. Um, Jet Strike was actually a heavily rewritten version of, of Amos because Francois Leonet gave me a copy of the source code um, so I could optimize it for, for, for specific use. Um, and um, so, so it was just like a easiest easiest way through kind of kind of thing you know there was rather than start again on yet and on a completely fresh code base uh, and so on but we did do um base jumpers as the, as a as a game after we did jet strike and then cd32 came along and we, we actually did a, a cd32 version of base jumpers but i've never seen it as a as a boxed copy anywhere Put that in your search, Tony. Yeah, that that one would be a that one would be a major challenge for any collectors. I I do believe it was published. It was an AGA version which had all the extra levels, and the CD32 version had all the extra levels and a classical music soundtrack, because our publishers didn't want to spending any time on it, so they just basically nabbed some public domain classical music and said, "Can you use this?" And I go, okay, fair enough. It's crazy enough, you know. <laughs> So you're falling down the side of a building to Debussy or whatever, you know. <laughs> Genius. <laughs> it worked, actually. Again, we had to yeah, do the, exactly. the messing around with stings between the tracks because you couldn't, you know, you couldn't crossfade music or anything on the CD32. And that was like, it was, it's a machine that you can play music on. You know, it's a CD on it. And the first thing you would think of is how do we control the music? But Commodore I bolted on, bung a couple of wires across, just give us play control. That's about it. You know? <laughs> uh, and the funniest thing was, as we were we were basically going uh, bust at the time, and our publishers were busy going under, we had a request from Commodore because they were really in trouble. And Commodore said, oh, can you send us 50 copies of each of your games so that we can go and do a big promotion campaign with them? Which, of course, our publisher did. And we found out a couple of months later that people, the Commodore's marketing department were getting those copies of the games and selling them so that they could try and pay some of the wages because they were so <laughs> short of money at the time. <laughs> <laughs> Commodore Market Store. 
because well, it showed it's showing up in small ads in in some of the computer <laughs> games magazines of you know Commodore thirty two games, the, you know these games are for, for sale, and it turned out to be someone at Commodore selling. <laughs> <laughs> That's like going to a Does burger it... van, and it's like Tim Cook running it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's very good at distribution, so why not? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the whole thing's a facade. <laughs> it, it does make me smile to think, here's CD, this technology brimming with data storage capacity, and there you are sending tons and tons of floppy disks off yeah. to get your first gold master. <laughs> yeah, it was, and, and, and then still sending them for each gold master, you know, um, to, to, keep, to keep updating. You yeah, basically had to send the CD's worth of, da of data each time to get the new CD. And you're always working one set of data behind um, uh, on the thing. And, and, and then, of course, we went from that, having shut down after the publisher went bust, we, we couldn't carry on with, with doing our own company then. So I shut down, eventually got a job up at um, a company called Electric Spectacle up in Newcastle, who were really good, but they were, of course, working on Jaguar games. So it's like, yeah, one frying pan to another. <laughs> yeah, straight out of one frying pan into the fire by the sounds of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it was an interesting time in console hardware. There was all these new challenges. And yeah. when the Sony PlayStation came along, I'm sure there was because of that console frenzy of, oh, the Jaguar, the CD32, the Sony PlayStation? But there's the Sega Saturn. Sega's been around for a while now. The Mega Drive was very successful. What are all these new contenders going to achieve? And Sony, I think, surprised everybody. Mm. Well, I think really that's a... Um, a, a thing of the, all the different, all the new contenders disrupted things. At the, at the time, it was Atari would basically hung on to their old stuff for too long, so they they were dropping out. So there was a bit of a gap, and Nintendo and Sega were pretty well established still. And then, and, and then it was just a case of because everyone else was diving in to try and fill in this gap and Atari were trying to plug the gap with the Jaguar and, and obviously failing. And there was new technology. And because of all that chaos, Sony were able to come along and say, well, look, yes, here's the chaos refined into something that actually works and has sensible amounts of storage and you can access the CD properly, you know, and it has enough memory just. Um, and And it's got games on it. You know, which was the critical thing, and uh, and of course, his, you know, history was written. Yeah, we've we never had a console from Acorn, but Acorn does have one in the eye for pretty much every console manufacturer ever to exist because they were brought as ARM, mm. the ARM chip, and now our ARM chip is in the vast majority of mobile phone devices and tablets. Ah. So you could say, no, no. Oh, Arm, oh. arms, <laughs> arms, uh, chip software is not the chips the the, the so the, the way the chips are designed the, the, the software instruction set is in it but not the arm chips it's the spec is it? yeah right because yeah. like for instance App, apple's chips for years haven't been arm chips they've been they've taken apple they've taken arms software uh, you know um spec and basically expanded it completely rewritten it so it's still Absolutely. paying money to arm. So arm's like winning left, right, and center, you know. Making an arm and a leg, yeah. Yes, yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, yeah. So for instance, Apple's chips have very little to do with arm now. Yeah. No, Apple well, you don't have to look at their new MacBooks with their M1 processors, which is kind of based on ARM originally, like you say, but they've really taken it in their own direction. And you know, for a laptop, it's stupid fast for what it is. Hmm? 
yeah it's uh well, it's and that's just the that's basically the um the equivalent of their slowest possible laptop you know the way the way they've done with the m1 the m1's just stuck an entry absolute entry level so the the killer one for most of us is going to be what are they going to do with m2 um you know that because that's going to be the one hopefully for the pro machines you know how do they expand it because the the way they've done it is pretty serious you know it's it's like a decade above what other people have done so far and they certainly weren't the first to dip the toe into this world. I mean, there's oh, been no. other devices that were trying to do laptops with this kind of background, and there was the Windows ARM operating system. Hmm. That didn't quite go anywhere. And then Apple comes along and pretty much succeeds straight well, out the game, like with, which tends to be like Apple's with, thing. Yeah, like with Sony and the PlayStation, it's the same kind of deal. Sony weren't the first to come up with a console with a CD on it. But they just watched what everyone else did, what other people made mistakes on, learned from it, worked out what they could do better, and then refined it. Apple does the same thing. Then they're very rarely the first to do something that you know you can't trace back to something else. But they are usually the first ones to do it properly. Yeah, you know, I mean the I the iPhone and the PlayStation One are pretty much the same the same phenomena aren't they that the, mm. there was nokia there was everybody doing phones but they were all rubbish and they were all certain that they were, that was the way it was going to be forever and, and apple came along and just and just completely reimagined yeah. what, what the phone would, I mean, would be and could could be and what the relationship was the car, car, the, the carriers would be and you know, everything changed with the, with the iphone and and all of the competitors laughed at it when it when it came out and said it's, it'll give it a year you know and look at mm. it now and the playstation mm. did the same thing i guess yeah, I mean, with the iPhone, the, one of the most contentious things, especially if you were a BlackBerry user at the time, it doesn't have a keyboard. You know, BlackBerry's brilliant. Everyone uses a BlackBerry then because <laughs> it, it has a keyboard and you can type. But what they realized at Apple was if you have a virtual keyboard only, every different language can have its own keyboard, which the BlackBerry was crippled by. You, you know, you, you've got your Chinese users, your Russian users, your Arabic users were were basically having to pay for special blackberries or if they could get them at all and that that made the iphone much more capable of a, of a wild worldwide market and the same phone could do multiple languages without a problem you know whereas with a blackberry you'd have to get a different phone if you wanted a Mazzurti keyboard for instance for, for french or some of the other european ones um so you end up with this thing of opening it up just because just because they looked at how things did and didn't work now as we're in the mobile space and we're looking at modern development tony is actually creating a game right now a schmop which is probably the nicest genre to say a schmop <laughs> yeah <laughs> how's your schmop going tony <laughs> i should point out i'm supposed to be doing something else with aaron but i'm, I'm waiting for him <laughs> so yeah that's that's now done so i, I, I will sync that up to the the, the, the source tree uh, this, this weekend <laughs> so while i'm waiting i'm, I'm and, uh, and in between i'm doing my shmup yeah but, and how's your shmup going it's going it's What's going, the latest developments it's, it's going okay really uh you know um just just uh it's just it's just a manageable size so i'm not it's not it's not getting out of control you know i've done a few other projects of my own in the in the past few years and they they've they've kind of it, and, and they are the same same concept in a way but they've always i've always found them getting 
getting too complicated or something and this one this one just feels right you know i've got I've designed the engine right and the what, what it's going to do seems seems right so it's actually progressing through the pain barrier part of a project that that often often hits me so yeah i'm feeling quite quite pleased with it and if, so, you, if you join the discord you can you can watch my my inane comments as as, as i log the development uh, <laughs> bit by bit <laughs> Which I am doing. I have no idea what half of it's on about, but I am you, watching you with interest. You won't do because it's it's in like a short shorthand that that only I understand. But uh, you know, in, in in the interest of transparency, I'm I'm logging it all in public. It's like when I'm reading Scum VM. They've got an IRC channel and a Discord channel, which sort of sync with each other. And I'm reading that, and when they're talking heavy sort of development situations and why this working. The, the brilliant thing I see about watching it is how they're really helping each other. It's for pub, you know, it's publicly viewable to see these conversations and you've got all those developers sort of dipping in. Oh, have you tried this? Or maybe you need to try this instead. And you can see them sort of diagnosing it. And it's like per programming through Discord. It's quite an amazing thing to mm. watch. And it's, again, it's a testament to Scum VM and how they manage that. Having sort of experienced conversations in the you know in a larger team, for instance, uh, uh, places like Argonaut, where the uh, the conversations when when things weren't working weren't particularly helpful uh, or polite, shall we say. <laughs> <laughs> that's, just, that's, that's that's the whole thing. I could I could just imagine if if it had been all been in the public eye, how different it could have been in terms of. I don't think we'd ever have got anything done, but you know, then again, that's not far off what happened a lot of the time anyway. Um, uh, yeah, I think it would be a lot less threatening to kill people um, <laughs> and uh, and punch-ups and stuff like that, probably. But, um, yeah, it would, it would certainly have been uh, more polite. <laughs> Is that how you keep it friendly, Eugene? It's all in the public view. <laughs> uh, yes, but there's, uh, first of all, not everything is public because there are team only channels, which uh, when developers join the team, they get access to it. Uh, but uh, it's not about only being public. Uh, the very nature of the project helps because we are working with volunteers. If you offend somebody, the person will not show up online and say goodbye to it. So you have to be polite with the person. Of course, uh, the dramas are happening sometime from time to time, and it is one of my duties is to, how to say, calm down and even sometimes work as mediator. Uh, but uh, again, people, and we have, how to say, certain profile uh, of a developer. You have to be friendly in order to be successful in, in our project. If you are not, you you will not find enough support from others and uh, we, we saw as uh, james was mentioned people joining and leaving the project and uh, in number of occasions it was because those people's uh, attitude was not fitting the the department i recently was working with some of the other projects and i can tell you that in other projects the level of toxicity uh, as it is the modern world, right, is much higher. And honestly speaking, I don't know how we would survive for 20 years if we would have these dramas every now and then on every occasion. I think that's one of the things that's most impressive about that is keeping 
any team going for 20 years, however dispersed it is or whatever. Um, you know, we've got, um, I'm, I'm on a group on Facebook called Grumpy Old Git Developers. Um, and it's people like me and Tony, although Tony's not actually on it because he's, he's reclassified as too grumpy for it, I think. Um, but, <laughs> it, 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 was, it, was, it was too much for me. I had to drop out, yeah. It was too grumpy for me is saying something, you know. Yeah, yeah. They, there were a lot of dramas on it. There was a great cull once when one of, the, one of the admins of the group decided there were too many grumpy objects on there. So he just randomly culled half of them. And just kicked, it, kicked half the people off, whether they liked them or not. Um, and this, they were the kind of the old software industry, the old games industry, were that, that lot in a nutshell. And we'd, we'd have things like commenting about the fact that yes, we used to comment code, but you would have to, if it was going to be reviewed by another company, you'd have to go through and clean out all the swear words in the code and the people attacking other people's code in the comments. It's like, you know, oh, so-and-so, check this in, and it's rubbish. You shouldn't do it. It, 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 using slightly more swear words, usually, you know. What is he doing on this project? You know, there was, there's all this sort of stuff hidden away in a lot of the code. And some some code still has that in. So, again, it, it's, it, was a, it was a very, very toxic environment, um, I, I would say, a lot, a lot of stuff. There was there's some very good stuff going on. But but especially especially some of the old school games companies, there was a lot of toxicity going on. So when you commented in code, um, and this goes to all of you, particularly when you rewind in twenty years or so, did you ever have the expectation that years later there might be actually someone reading this and get some sort of historical significance out of it? That must be quite a a brain no, no. teaser. No, we we really no. didn't think any anything. I mean, Revolution famously has lost all of its early 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 game software um, source code. So you know, the, the only reason it still exists is because is because it went to ScumVM, who managed to properly preserve it. Um, you know, we never thought it had any mm. value whatsoever. No. Um, but but yeah, I, I went and had a look at some of that stuff recently on on the on the ScumVM. Uh, uh, repo and uh, as I managed to see so a lot of my old comments are still in there which is pretty pretty shocking I mean it wasn't toxic but it was it was random bizarre sure. nonsense <laughs> a lot of it <laughs> preserved forever in public <laughs> I think it's it's quite it's quite good that most of my uh, much earlier stuff got lost hard drive failures lost discs you know formats that just don't exist anymore that kind of stuff um and because at various points in time publishers have said oh well, can we take this send it to this guy and he's going to port it to something and until fairly recently like in the last 10 years or so everybody who's tried to port my code has gone crazy or disappeared or just generally, no, I'm not touching this anymore. <laughs> Which probably, or joined Grumpy Old Gets. <laughs> yeah, well, it's 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 it used to be my my code has a certain style. Admittedly, <laughs> it helps me because I can I can see when it's my code um, immediately. I know that's my code. There's certain things I don't, and, and it's almost become muscle memory for sort of going going through the code to do certain things in certain ways, which works great. But my, some of my earlier code, especially. It was kind of like a Necronomicon kind of level stuff for other coders, and it didn't <laughs> didn't do people any good. So I have I have made it a bit nicer over the years. <laughs> so Eugene, Scumvim is 
you mentioned earlier it can be on a fridge i'm not sure the practical aspects of that i guess it was more of it's like doom we can can we stick it on this pocket calculator which is always a challenge i see on youtube popping up time and time again can we install doom and play doom so the, what, what was the thinking behind the fridge and how on earth again do you manage so many ports to other platforms so it can be playable in things like android for example well why fridge i don't know <laughs> as the person who worked it in there but probably because it just had a nice tool chain and uh, scumvm has a very very high portability um I was mentioning Google Summer of Code, and uh, this is where, if for for those who don't know, this is where Google tries to pay back for the, the open source projects. So they basically sponsor students, but then the projects, and currently there is about 300 of them every year, they get these new people. But then they have Mentor Summit, when uh, where basically all of these the prominent open source project people Gang, uh, hand together. It used to be in Google Plex, then this year's is going to be virtual, obviously. And this is where you you know. And I can tell you that ScanVM is one of the most ported software, like working with the complexity. Of course, if you talk about Zlib or whatever, uh, but it has no interface. But out of things which has rich graphics inputs and everything. ScumVM and uh, I would say uh, NetBSD are the most ported ones. And this is why uh, my estimation, it, it, it can't uh, initial estimation, uh, estimation uh, prove to be right at this moment that it takes about two weeks for a person who knows certain platform to port ScumVM fully to this new platform. Because uh, the underlying code, it's called OSystem, uh, it is really straightforward how what method you need to implement platform specific and everything else is built on top of it and this is why portability is there i hope that answers the question and the most impressive part by the way out of it which impresses me personally was on nintendo 64 and it was done by a guy who actually put it in a cartridge or draw flashable cartridges imagine that and uh, one of the first games he was working on it's a full throttle which is behind uh, you james on the uh, poster pretty complex game on a cd but now imagine sticking it in the nintendo 64 and it is working amazing portability so that's taking a game from kind of that era and putting it on the same era device so when we think of scumvm we may be thinking of we're porting it to modern platforms or whatever is considered modern at the time considering scumvm 20 years when scumvm was first about a dreamcast port seemed obvious because that was around the time of the dreamcast but that's actually going backwards nintendo 64 that's just if not more impressive than getting it on the modern stuff to get it on the older stuff as well it's also the um uh, there's, there's always little yeah. difficulties like the N64's texture memory is fairly, fairly minimal because it was designed to be a 3D machine. So I can imagine mm -hmm. trying to yeah. get 2D texture, you know, 2D raster graphics displaying on it would actually be quite a challenge um, in, a, in a, you know, doing yeah. it in a good way. Yeah. 
we basically render on a texture and then bleed triangles with these texture mm. triangles on the screen. And now, speaking of uh, going backward, there is some guy who ports ScumVM on the original Amiga, original 68030 and 040 CPUs. Mm. He had to select only one engine, it was Scum, and he had to hand optimize certain graphics routines because it was not fast enough but still he achieved it and mm. uh, he was 14 and monkey island, secret of monkey island working indiana jones games are working there on original amiga amazing blows my mind it really does <laughs> yeah. no wonder you're so proud over there so congratulations to you on your 20th anniversary mm. And Thank now you. moving to, sort of to the modern uh, mobile games. And this has kind of opened up a new era for programmers again, because it doesn't have to be this massive team. It can be just a team of a few people or even one person. I mean, has that sort of in for Tony and Aaron in particular, is this sort of brought about that original emotions you would have got you know further back when you started originally programming things giving you that opportunity to dabble in this arena again it did um we well we we, we were in on the iphone as soon as it became available because we by that point uh adam had left argonaut before argonaut folded started up strange flavor and we were doing mac games specifically did some xbox 360 games when microsoft were, was doing that and we were getting we were working on one xbox 360 game that never got released at the, with with a publisher we actually had we had we were working with freeverse games who'd become our publisher and they um said look we really really want you to do some iphone games because it's available we think it's going to be big and we're like yeah we agree you know don't we want to no no just put that to one side focus you know so we got started on on the iphone and the first game we released was a very simple one based off one of the games uh one of the mini games we'd actually done another game thing from years back and then flick fishing we released uh as our second game on the iphone and it was the first application first game or in fact first application to hit a million sales um on mobile um and um it went on people are still playing it now which is great and for us as a two-man team, although albeit working with a slightly bigger publisher, I mean, they Freeverse themselves weren't that big, um, was a very big deal. There was a very definite gold rush back then, uh, and that was 2008. And then it got more and more to the point where there's, there's such a saturated market, you could release something and get it so people could play it, but only about five people would see it, you know, in, in sort of any given scenario. So you didn't necessarily need a big team to write a game um a big team could help if you wanted to do a mega production which you know some a lot more of the the, the big name ones are but you need a very serious set of people who could do marketing um and it be became loaded towards that sort of admin end and, and marketing end of of, the, of the, the company so you really do need to have someone who knows what they're doing to just just get the thing promoted because you up against so much other stuff now because everybody can can put a game on there 
Yeah, you, you 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 can't do a game out of context. You know, you you can write it, but you and then chuck it at an app store, and it and no no one will see it. It's all about context. So you mm. know, you you can write your game, which is great, and you can do that with the the two three, ideally, four people, in in my view, four or five people is the is the optimum size for a, for a game dev team, uh, in in my in my in my view, which is a lot less than than most of them are. By several magnitudes, but then you need you need the context of the game, and for that you need to you need to be building a community around whatever it is you're doing, and people need to know about it. And you need your, you know, you need your thousand fans thing, um, who will talk about it. Uh, and if you've got that, then you'll be fine. But if you just mm. if you just chuck it at if you just chuck it at an app store, it, it'll no matter how good it is, it'll be very lucky to do well. But you know, if you if you're forward facing and uh, people know who you are and people. People will buy into authenticity these days, uh, and, and and something real rather than something manufactured in a big team, in a big studio somewhere to a to a marketing spec. Then uh, you know there's a certain a certain group, a certain thought, a certain um, type of person who who is looking for that authentic experience and, and will be attracted to to what you're doing if it's if it's a real thing. You know, so the job is to connect with with that audience. If that makes any sense. So, and how on earth are you going to release and sort of promote your shmup? And that's just an excuse for me to say shmup again. Uh, by well, you know, people know me from from what I used to do, of course, um, and you know, talking to you on this on this podcast and things like that, and having a very open Discord. I mean, I'm not I'm not actively promoting anything at the moment because it's too soon. But um, you know, by being by being open and available long before this game will be finished hopefully I'll, I'll i'll connect it with a few fans or potential fans does it have an official title yet uh the game uh, obsidian hellscape and who knows in 20 years it might be ported to scum vm <laughs> <laughs> it might be uh, unbelie unbelievably perhaps it actually uses the same scripting system as uh, as broken sword so so there's, there's oh, wow. lineage as well. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, okay. Synchronizing. You've got to go into this. It, it really does. It, it has. It has. Because uh, we, myself and Dave Sykes, rewrote the script interpreter compiler pair for for C sharp, um, which which I'm now using under Unity, and it's as good a thing as anything to you know you can use it. Um, you can use it to coordinate what happens when George clicks on a locked door, or you can use it to synchronize the the waves of aliens in a shmup. It works just as well. So in either in either context, so and and it's my 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 brain works around the scripting system which I've used for twenty odd years at Revolution. So any anything to me that is content that needs that needs um, thinking out and and coordinating, choreographing that I, I just think script. You know, revolution script, and, and I've got that system up and running again. So that's what I use. So there you go. <laughs> it's a bit of trivia. So how often do you find that you can sort of reuse older code in, in a more modern setting? Not very often. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Eugene, uh, for us, it stays. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> but it is only because of ScumVM, uh, the old things and the things I was doing professionally, yes, not very often. You have to go bespoke almost every time. The actual and concepts of it, you, you can reuse a lot. 
you know i'm still yeah. using tricks of the trade i learned when i first started coding 40 years ago and it, it's you know um that stays with you but yeah the actual code itself is very contextual yeah so we'll just cover one more thing before we end the podcast it's been absolutely delightful to have you all on folks but one thing that caught my interest recently was just a few days ago, Microsoft released Windows 11 and they've had intriguing operating system releases over the last few years. Windows 8, shall we say, didn't go down particularly well in trying to reinvent the wheel too far. Ditching the start menu was possibly uh, an interesting decision that caught most consumers by surprise. They did bring it back in a later version of Windows 8, but it wasn't really until Windows 10 that it felt more like Windows as we know Windows. And now Windows 11 actually has a nice lick of paint, shall we say, with a very, I'd say, pleasing front-end visual design. I'm actually running on Windows 11 now, which is a little bit scary with it being so new, but touchboard, it seems quite stable so far. But the reason I bring this up, gentlemen, is of over the years of using must be a number of different operating systems. Which was the one that stands out to you for whatever reason, good or bad? And I'll, I'll quickly start. For me, it was actually Risk OS on the Acorn. At the time, it felt very clean and modern and just a really nice visual interface. And granted, these things I was sort of working on previously were incredibly basic. I mean, we're talking like Commodore 64 stuff here. <laughs> so it was always going to seem like a big jump to go something like Risk OS on the Acorn Archimedes. But even then, it just felt really great. And now having the hindsight of being able to see like the Atari ST equivalent and the Amiga equivalent, I still think it was right up there in sort of visual cleanness and usability and the three button mouse, <laughs> I mean, for goodness sake, a three button mouse. Um, what about you guys? What's the one that stands out to you? For me, it's been Macos, both as probably both as the best and the worst. Because um, as a user and to a point as a developer, I've been using Macos since pretty much almost it first came out. I was actually programming on uh, a Mac in 1985. Um, using Microsoft Basic for the Mac, which again was radical. You know, your, your text had kerning and stuff. You know, which for 1985 was just unheard of. You know, it was it was, it was brilliant. But the actual ability to write stuff that is obvious and usable straight away by most people when when you know when they use it, and, and even doing doing games. You know, game, games has always been a problem, not so much because of the operating system, although some elements of it made it harder, but more from the fact that Apple themselves just never, ever really got games. And they, I don't think they still do quite, you know, they haven't quite got the hang of it yet. They're getting there, but they haven't quite got the hang of it yet. And, and that was always a case of uh, most Mac game developers write games for the Mac because they want to, despite of Apple, not because of Apple, you know, but, but the actual OS itself, you know, again, you say about the three button mouse, Apple went the other way. The single button mouse was actually the logical thing because you only have to learn to use one button. So if you're a, if you're a programmer, um, DOS, you know, and, and 
three button mice and everything like that are logical because you can get as much stuff on as once you learn it all it becomes muscle memory you do it no problem but for a normal user single button is the obvious thing you design the interface around the fact that you've got a single button you don't make things over complex which again macos has suffered from over the years as more things have been it's been made to do more things and the same with windows as well the more complex it's become and the, the more buttons you end up needing to use uh, and you, you you get this thing where again macos has stayed true to its roots of trying to avoid things like hamburger menus and stuff like that because it's like well is that too complicated yes dumb it down you know make it straightforward and simple and that that's kind of always worked it's had basically very bad sidetracks every now and again and from the programming side it has been an absolute blooming nightmare um getting some stuff working um but but generally speaking it's usually fairly well documented in most cases and um you know it it, it does kind of work you know um with with uh yeah other osses and amiga os i really didn't like at all it wasn't very usable um that's why i only got into it through amos amos is straightforward you just it was just typing in level of stuff you know um i didn't i didn't mind um gem on the st it was okay it was quite usable loss but it was very limited uh, and the earlier versions of windows i just hated <laughs> um i think microsoft have been pretty sensible with windows 11 in basically putting literally a lick of paint on windows 10 because their money is in just selling people on Office and Windows upgrades. You know, that, that's, their, that's where they make the money. So the logical thing to do is keep it working nicely, make it exactly the same, just slightly shinier. And they'll just keep making money. Yeah, it's the, it's the business hmm. for them, as in they will focus on the corporate, the big companies. I will sell you well, ten, they... tens of thousands of... Windows licenses and Office licenses yeah. just keep sending it. Their, their cleverest move uh, wasn't copying MacOS, which they did because it, you know you could tell just from the Pascal calls in it. Um, it they, was the cleverest move they did was actually letting um, large pirate organisations clone, uh, copy Windows and mass distribute things like Windows and Office illegally at the time. You know, I mean, the, the Red Army's main source of income was distributing. Um, you know, copied versions of Windows and, and Office at one point until they eventually stopped it. But by doing that, any any other software that was trying to compete with it had no chance because for most people, Windows and Office were free or very, very cheap. You couldn't do, a, a, you know, a professional level OS or a professional level Office application because you couldn't compete with free. And then once they all died off, Windows is, you know, Microsoft is still selling those to the people who are actually paying for them, and they can gradually rein in the piracy a bit. You know, so so it's basically flood the market with with free knockoffs, and then once you've got them all, yeah, there's no more competition. Go for it. <laughs> Sounds like Apple lock in there. <laughs> well, that's the daft thing. There wasn't really any Apple lock in. Mm. You know, with with Windows, they did the lock in by make it so everybody has to have it because it's the de facto one that everyone's got, whether you're paying for it or not, and then make everyone pay for it. Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Eugene? What's about uh, your sort of favorite operating systems and maybe not so favorite over the years? Speaking of design, 
I loved IELTS before seven when it was with Skimmer Prism. Yeah. I loved it. And I didn't like so much when they went with this flat tendency, which was invented originally by Google. And development-wise, um, I loved uh, FreeBSD for many years, and this is why these days I prefer macOS, because it's FreeBSD with a very nice and slick design on top of it, with the uh, like good and nice fundamentals of Unix, because I'm also a Unix, Unix guy. And when I was forced to work on Windows, the very first thing I was always installed, installing is minimalist GNU Windows environment. So basically Unix tools on Windows, and this is where I was working. I prefer terminal over, as I called it, mouse herding. Much faster for me. Mm. No GUI for you, just command line and off you go. <laughs> exactly. It's interesting. Yeah, and so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, um, it's interesting you mentioned about the whole flat design thing with iOS 7. I, I like you, I loved some of the skew, skew can't even say the word. But um, there was they just before it happened in iOS 7, there was a podcast app. And I dread to think how long it took them to do this. But you'd, you'd select a podcast and press play. And then you'd actually see like a tape and like the tape head going up and then the, the cassette going round. And if you stopped it, it wouldn't just stop dead. It would stop and you'd see the tape flex. And it was just insane levels of detail. I was mm. mesmerized. Screw listening to podcasts. Yeah. I was pressing press play and stop and rewind fast, but just to see this beautiful animation. And then when they went flat, you just got like the podcast image and that was it. And it was quite disappointing after that. So I'm with you, Eugene. Maybe there were certain apps where they didn't need to go as far as they did in that realm. But still, there were those, those quirky things where I think we lost something. I really mm. do. And Windows Phone had Metro design, which was probably like the real true first flat, flat design. Now, Windows Phone, we all know, didn't last very long in the end and help by Nokia didn't help their <laughs> fortunes go any further with it either. But Metro, as they called it then, was like, wow, this really is flat. It's literally just a solid color with the icon in the middle of it. It's coder art. <laughs> 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 and how about you, Tony? You get the last say of the podcast. Uh -huh. uh, well, I'll say the best programming environment ever was was PDS, um, Programmers Development System, back in the eighties and, and and just touching the nineties. I mean, it was just I've, I've spoken about this before, but it was it was it, you'd have a, a, an Amstrad sixteen forty PC and, you, and a wire going to the back of a Spectrum, and you would press compile, and it would it, you were looking at a second to compile. You're looking at half a second to send it down into the spectrum, and then it'd be running. And it was you could literally iterate on a, on a three or four second loop, edit loop, which which if you if you if you then extrapolate, I mean, I, I, I like to work by by test something, tweak a number, test something, tweak a number, like one incrementing one at a time, some value, and running it a thousand times to see to see what difference it makes and choose you the want best to fly one. the cd32 uh, no i probably didn't which is which is why i've forgotten all about it so p so pbs was was definitely the best way to program and it's got it's got progressively worse ever since that time so now we're at unity where it's like just ridiculously slow to do anything and if you if you if you're targeting ielts or something then it's like bloody hours you know almost mm. in, in between between runs um 
I'd say uh, Windows peaked at NT4. Uh, I'll say Snow Leopard on 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 the Mac was 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 a particularly nice one, although it's not it's not so bad, isn't it? I mean, the good thing about macOS is they don't just pile features on the top of it. It's like Tetris; like a bottom layer will disappear. It will crunch down, so it never gets any bigger. You know, macOS it, it, it new things come in, but it 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 optimizes and it it never gets too big and heavy. So that's the beauty of macOS, I think. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I I'm Mac now, so. You know, I generally, I generally just just keep on with the latest one, and nothing really changes. You know, and, and as Eugene says, the the beauty of the Mac is you just open up a terminal and you've got everything you knew from from back in the Unix days, however many decades ago. You know, it's it's familiar underneath and and nice nice above it. So it, it's a thing of beauty is MacOS really, and they generally don't screw it up. Um, and I'll just go back to what we were talking about earlier. Uh, I, I'm, I'm going to say a, a Samsung fridge is actually just an Android phone with a big door. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's kind of like the ultimate flip phone, isn't it? <laughs> it's got a cool, it's got a cool interior. Yeah. <laughs> if phones get any bigger, it will be like carrying a fridge door. <laughs> it never overheats. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> there you go. Water cooling, perfect. <laughs> it's, it's probably just an Android a Galaxy prototype, and they said, "Hang on, we can sell this as a fridge." Yeah, we we need the cooling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much, gentlemen. It's been a fantastic podcast, and we hope to see you all again next time on the Game and Gadget Podcast.